Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we are continuing our series this semester through our church statement of faith. Uh, we recently, I don't know, two months ago, something like that, uh, changed our statement of faith. It was... Uh, the Parkway Church exists to glorify God by making disciples. That's great. We love that. But we thought we could do a little better by explaining exactly how to do that. So it has changed to the Parkway Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ who do three things. Who delight in him, who display his love to one another, and who thirdly declare him to the world. So each class this semester has been us tracking one of those three things. How to do that one of those three things, how to delight in him, how to display his love, how to declare him to the world. Uh, and today we're talking about how to kill sin, which is under that first goal. That's why I very cleverly have bolded it at the top of your notes. Wow, look at me go. Um, how to kill sin falls under delight. And I think, I, at least for me, and I would expect for most of us, that comes as a bit of a surprise. Right? Uh, what mortification, which is kind of the classic term for killing sin, what does dying have to do with delight? It's kind of a, not, not something we would normally think go together. Bible study, prayer, enjoying creation, right? Those are the other things we'll we talk about under delight. But killing sin, how does that fit? So actually, uh, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to help me justify the next 45 minutes to an hour. Okay, that's what I'm asking you to do. So why does this fit? Why might this fit under delight? So uh, the question I want to ask all of you, I'd like your thoughts, is why is it helpful to talk about killing sin in order to delight in God? Why is that helpful? I heard it say it one more time. So we know how. Know how to do what? How to die to sin. Okay. So dying to sin is relevant to delighting in Christ somehow. Other thoughts? It gives, who's sorry? Gives us hope. What do you mean by that, Gretchen? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Other thoughts? The less we sin, the more we delight. Okay, yeah, that's great, Jay. Other thoughts? Who's talking? Randy. Okay, sorry. I'm, I'm still like, what? It's just a sea of empty faces. Randy, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, so the, so the opposite is also, so we're talking about killing sin to delight in God. Randy's saying, delight in God, kill sin. Absolutely. Other thoughts on this? I think we've hit the main ones, but there could be more. Okay, yeah, we've said it. I think the fundamental answer is that there's nothing more deadly to your delight in God than your own sin, right? Just at a, at a fundamental theological level, let's think about that, right? So uh, sin is unholiness, God is holiness. Sin is death, God is life. Sin is hideousness, God is beauty. Sin is darkness, God is light. So logically, nothing could destroy your communion with God more and sin. The more you're full of junk food, the less likely you'll order the steak. The more you dip your toes in the fleeting pleasures of sin, the, the less you will bask in the infinite joys of God. So mortification, this, this traditional term, right, for putting sin to death is essential 
to delighting in Christ. And as Randy pointed out, it goes the other direction too. Delighting in Christ is essential to putting sin to death. So we're going to talk about both of those this morning. Uh, And I think it's important to note right here at the outset, that this is not just a little advice column. What What we're trying to do here is not just a good idea that I think will, you know, maybe you'll be a little happier. Maybe things will go easier. Uh, As I have there at the top of your notes, a quote from John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. We're talking about life and death here. We're not just talking about a little past that you need to deal with. We're talking about a battle with an enemy that can result in life or in death. So this is a war. This is a war. Killing sin is a matter of battle. And so I'm going to use some military imagery, military language as we talk about this. But uh, just to set you up for the rest of this class, we're going to kind of have two sections in this class today. First, we're going to talk about the theology of sin from the Bible. We're going to get to know the enemy. And then second, we're going to, from that theological foundation, get into the practical. How do you actually kill sin? What do you do? What are the practical steps you take in order to put your sin to death. And each of those section, main sections is going to have several subsections under it. I won't give you the full outline, but it's in your notes. You can look ahead if you want. But that's our outline. First, theology of sin. Know the enemy. Second, practical. How do we put sin to death? So first, a theology of sin. Uh, why is this important? I've already alluded to it. Uh, so uh, I, yeah, there's a military kind of imagery in the Bible for fighting sin. So I've quoted the famous military uh, genius of all time, Sun Tzu, the author of The Art of War. Not a Christian, but this quote is true. If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. We need to understand the enemy, the sin that is in our own hearts. Understanding is the first step to victory. If we don't understand what we're up against, we will fail. Now, hopefully, uh, I'll say this. This won't be a full theology of sin. Uh, I wish we could spend a whole hour diving into all the things we could say about sin. But uh, I'm kind of organized this in such a way that I think it will be helpful for the punchline of this class, putting sin to death. So just so you know, if you're looking for a full homardiology, that's the fancy word for doctrine of sin, uh, we're going to kind of dip our toes in it, but it won't be the full, full spectrum that we could get into. Uh, all right. First, let's talk about the sinful nature. The sinful nature. This is ourselves. This is our reality, our problem. And to begin with that, let's go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and let's look at the origin of sin. We're going to walk through this whole passage in Genesis 3, uh, but I I have there for you at the bottom of your notes kind of the bullet point takeaways I want you to see from this passage, but we're going to see those kind of as they unfold throughout the text. So verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? All right, so the famous fall narrative begins with Satan slithering up to Eve and telling a nasty little lie. And we know it's a lie because very clearly God said, Genesis 2.16, You may eat from every tree in the garden except this one. So there's all these trees, just abundant, whatever you could ever want. It's there for you, not this tree right here. And Satan completely twists that and says, so God said, don't eat anything in this garden? How crazy, right? So he's clearly trying to sow doubt. 
He's lying in order to sow a doubt about God's goodness in Eve's heart. And so already we see sin is rooted in a lie, a doubt about God's commandments. What did God actually say? Satan is sowing doubt at that level. Verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. You will not surely die. So Eve corrects Satan. Great job, Eve. We love that. And Satan just continues with another lie. He says, you won't die, which is not subtle like his first lie. This is an outright attack on God's character, on what God, it's an outright denial of what God had said. And that's at the root of sin too. As soon as you deny consequences, you can do anything you want. You will not surely die. If there is no judgment, if there is no consequence, then anything goes. You've heard these lies yourself. You won't get caught. There won't be consequences to this. It's just a little thing. No one will know. Those are the lies that sin continues to whisper in our ears today. Those lies continue to promote sin in our lives now. Satan continues, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan now isn't just lying about the consequences. You won't die. He is attacking God's character. He implies God has been hiding something. God's been holding out on them. There's something better for them that they're missing out because they're obeying God. That's what Satan is suggesting. That's how sin works. It says, don't listen to God. His way's boring. Someone over here, this is way better. Just trust me. You're gonna love it. As Billy Joel famously says, they say there's a heaven for those who await. I say it's better, or some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Seems to be much more fun. Darling, only the good die young. It's a good song, but he's wrong. That is what sin and Satan say. You're missing out on the fun. Don't you know this? Oh, there's so many better things over here. Come on over this way. It's going to be great. That's the nature of sin. And, and notice the, the nature of the temptation specifically. What, what's going to be more fun? Satan says, you'll be like God. You're going to know good and evil. And I think very clearly what he's saying there, I don't have time to get into all the textual weeds on this, but I don't think he's just saying you'll know about good and evil. He's saying you get to decide like God what's good and what's evil. You get to establish morality for yourself. You get to say, that's what's good. That's what's evil. I have, I have taken the divine prerogative on myself. I get to say, this is right. This is wrong. That's what Satan is offering them. And that, that sounds good, right? I get to be the boss. I get to, I get to be in charge. I, I get to call the shots. Who wouldn't want that? Well, verses six and seven. When the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Notice immediately after the, 
the pleasures of sin are taken, they realize it's not more fun. They immediately know. They immediately have this sense of shame, of a need to cover their nakedness. They believe the lie that this was going to be better, and they immediately knew it's not better. Sin and Satan can talk all day, but they cannot deliver on their promises. And then we find the aftermath, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Remember, Adam and Eve were told there won't be any judgment. This is a, this is a consequence-free indulgence. Dive on in and they immediately found out that was not the case. They could not get away with it. They tried to hide and they could not. They could not escape God's judgment because nothing is hidden from God. He sees everything. There is no hiding. And it's just a lie from the devil that says he doesn't, that God won't notice. But they believe that lie. Verse 11. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. We're going to see more of this, but very simply right there, we see sin separates, right? Objectively, it it separates us from God. Adam and Eve are about to be cast out of the garden, put under God's curse. But it also separates us from each other. Adam and Eve are, are, there's all this immediate pointing fingers every direction to anyone but yourself. That's what sin does. It tries to wriggle its way out of trouble. And if you look at Genesis 4, we see it doesn't just try to wriggle its way out of trouble. Sin snowballs, right? So uh, there's one little sin happens, you know, Cain kills Abel. And then before long, the lies multiply on top of each other. And like seven generations later, uh, Cain's descendant is just glorying in his sin, right? So sin just snowballs and perpetually covers itself up with worse and worse things. And it covers lies with more lies, That's what we see from this passage in Genesis 3, the origin of sin. And because of it, all of human history, we have suffered from original sin. So uh, we're moving to that next section, page 2 there in your notes. And I do need to clarify, uh, this is a a common misnomer. What's this? Whoa, I'm going to need this. Thank you. Um, This is my notes. I uh, thought I counted all my pages. Thanks, Jared. Um, I don't know where, did I leave that over there? That's hilarious. Okay, I would have been like, and the end, well, love Jesus, do that. Um, that is the end. Spoiler alert, Jared. Um, yeah, so we're now we're looking at the, what's called original sin. So we've looked at the origin of sin, and I think this is often misunderstood. It's a misnomer. Original sin does not refer to what Adam and Eve did. If you're in a theological, reading a book or in a conversation, Original sin does not refer to what Adam and Eve did. It refers to the results of what Adam and Eve did. So it refers to, I have uh, the definition there for you. Original sin is the guilty state and corrupt nature into which every human being is born. That's what Adam and Eve did, or sorry, that's the result of what Adam and Eve did. It describes our own nature. We're not talking about 
the thing itself, taking the forbidden fruit, we're talking about the result, original sin. All of humanity is guilty and corrupt in nature. So there's, there's two things there, right? Our guilt, we're under judgment, our corruption, we continue to sin. So this is important. Original sin is why we commit actual sins. This is, this is so often misunderstood. We are not sinners because we sin, although we do. We sin because we're sinners. Because there is a corruption in our own nature. And from, from the moment of our conception, we are born in sin. We are corrupt and we are guilty. We are depraved. That's our condition. And part of that corrupt nature is this doctrine of total depravity, or sometimes called pervasive corruption, because total depravity also is a bit of a misnomer. Uh, if you're familiar with Reformed theology, this is the T in tulip, right? Total depravity. Uh, the reason you can't do a pervasive corruption is pulip just doesn't sound cool. So we have to, we have to stick with the T, right? Uh, what is total depravity? Total depravity is this biblical idea that there is no part of who we are that is left unstained by sin. There is no part of who we are that is left unstained by sin. Look at Ephesians 4. Paul says, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You see what Paul's doing there, right? He's taking a theological inventory, right? He's, he, he's, he's kind of taking a, he's itemizing a list of what's wrong with fallen humanity. And the answer is everything. Everything is wrong with us. Their understanding, the mind is fallen. Their hearts, the desires are twisted. Their practices, the deeds are evil. So that's what the to doctrine of total depravity is about. It, it's not that we're as bad as we could possibly be. Like everyone is a murderer. And in, in a sense, what Jesus talks about, murder begins in the heart. So yes, that's true. But it's not like we're literally going around killing people left and right. We're not as bad as we could possibly be, but there is no part of who we are that is unstained by sin. So it is not the case that we do bad things with good intentions. Our intentions are also depraved. It's not the case that we do good things, but our thoughts are only where our wickedness resides. No, we are corrupt from head to toe, from heart to hands. There is no part of who you are that is unstained by sin. And so in light of that, I have a practical takeaway here for you already. That should demand humility. We should practice a self-suspicion. If there is no part of who we are that is left unstained by sin, when we do the, the work, when we talk about killing sin, I'll, I'll talk about the role of community in that, about having others in our lives who are helping us see our sin. We should have the self-suspicion to recognize that for everyone in this room, there is sin in your life that you're blind to. That's the nature of sin. It, 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 it itself blinds you to its own existence. So don't be surprised if someone sees a sin in you that, that you don't practice a self Suspicion, your logic, your eyes, your heart can all be deceived, so we should have a humility. And that's part of what I'm trying to do in this, this first section, this theology of sin, is impress upon you how bad the problem is. It is far worse than any of us realize. I could have put Genesis 6 up here. I, I didn't, but it's where before the flood, God looks down at the world and says, every intention of, in, of the thoughts of man's heart are only evil continually. I, I don't know how you could say that any stronger. 
Their hearts are only evil continually. That is our problem. It's bad news if we want to fight sin. If we are the problem, if our own nature is corrupt, then there's nothing that we ourselves can do to win that fight. That's sobering. We need an external intervention. And so necessarily, we're going to have to talk a lot about God's grace, about what God can do in our hearts. We need to know the problem so we can know the right solution. But, but before we leave this reflection here on our own sinful nature, I do want to say something uh, maybe surprisingly hopeful. So this is from Augustine, a famous fourth century theologian. I also should just say, if you're a Protestant evangelical, your theology of sin comes straight through Augustine. Uh, if you're, I mean, from Augustine reading the Bible, I should say, because that's where it comes from. But Augustine is, I mean, you have no idea how much he's influenced almost everything I'm saying here today. He's not right about everything, but he's, he is right about a lot. But this is something that's kind of more directly just taken from him. He reflects on the f- kind of four stages of human nature and our ability to sin in each one. So stage one, our nature at creation, Adam and Eve, as they were originally created, they were, this is some Latin, if it's not helpful, you can ignore it. They were passe pecare, passe non pecare. What that means is they were able to sin and they were able to not sin. But then stage two, after the fall, we are non passe non pecare. We are not able to not sin. But then in Christ, stage three, our redeemed nature, we are passe non pecare. We are able not to sin. And what Augustine doesn't mean there, he doesn't mean that we can be sinless in this life. Uh, Anyone who claims that is lying to you. The Bible is very clear. Romans chapter seven, Paul himself says, the evil I don't want to do, I keep on doing. So it's not that we can be completely sinless in this life, but in Christ, you can have victory over specific sins in your life. We are no longer slaves. And then stage four, our nature and eternal glory, we will be non passe peccari, not able to sin. There's a lot Augustine does with those four stages, but just for our purposes, I want to point out one thing. Sin is not a part of what it means to be human. Only one of the four stages is sin a requirement Sin is not a part of what it means to be human. So we say things like, to err is human. And I know what we mean by that, right? There's a truth, I mean, frankly, in our fallen state, that is true, but sin is a corruption of our nature. It is not essential to our nature. It is not what makes us human. It makes us less human when we sin. So I I, I harp on this because I think it's incredibly liberating. If sin was an essential part of what it means to be human, an inescapable identity, then we would indeed have cause to despair. Then we could not only never fight sin, but we would never, ever be free of it. There would be no ultimate hope for deliverance. A Dalmatian can't fight its spots, right? The spots make it a Dalmatian. But brothers and sisters, sin is not your identity in Christ. It is never your identity. It is a corruption of your identity. I think this is so important because in our society today, 
we tend to classify people by the sins that they are prone to. And I, this is, happens in the church, but I'm talking specifically outside the church too. For those who struggle with sins like same-sex attraction, right? the world, society will say, you are gay. That's who you are. It is your very identity. But that is never who you are in Christ. Sin is never your identity. Or, or other struggles like pornography, right? We use languages of addict, we use the language of addiction. I'm addicted. And I'm willing in some cases to leave a little small fraction of a percent to say, sure, there are must be compulsory cases that it is literally addiction language is necessary. But I think it is foolish to begin the fight by defining ourselves by our sin, to say, I, I, I absolutely can't help it. There is no way out of it. In Christ, if you start your battle with sin by defining yourself by sin or believing you cannot resist it, you have already lost. Don't believe that lie. And that brings us to this next section under the theology of sin, the nature of sin. So this deals with the question of what is sin and where does it come from? And we've seen some of this already, so some of it is, is going to be repeated, but I'll, I'll try to be brief when, when it is. The first thing you need to know is sin is the absence of good. Sin is the absence of good. It is, strictly speaking, in a theological sense, it is a defect, a corruption, a pollution, a stain. It is not a thing in itself. Those are the words we should use to talk about sin. Our nature is corrupted by sin. We have turned away from God because, well, one reason is because we're not dualists. Right? We don't believe that there's the good God and there's an evil God. And when we sin, we're you know, on this side. And when we don't sin, we're on this side. No, no, no. There's one good God who made everything good. And sin is a, a, not a turning towards something else. It's a turning away from him towards anything else. As we saw in Genesis 3, sin is failing to acknowledge God's divine prerogative that he is the one who gets to say, this is right and this is wrong. Sin is a turning away from what ought to be according to God's design, God's will, which he has revealed for us in creation and especially, above all, in the scriptures. And I, I think this is something the church has gotten wrong a lot in our history. So it, it just at certain points in church history, if you ask the question, is sex sin? The answer, if not yes, would be like almost it's almost sin. It's just, you know, it's not great. But the Bible is clear. Sex itself is not sin. It's something created by God. It was God's idea. And, and sin enters in when it's practiced outside of God's creational design, contrary to the way God created it. So in, in other words, the thing itself is good, but when it turns away from God, it becomes corrupt and sinful. The same could be true of anger or wrath. Is wrath sin? God is wrathful. The Bible's clear. There are things that demand vengeance, demand justice. So the goal is not, if anger is a sin you find yourself struggling with continually, the goal is not never ever be angry. The goal is practice righteous anger. As God does. Sin is the absence of good. It is a defection from God's Way. Second, sin is cosmic 
rebellion. Sin is cosmic rebellion. This is important because it shows us how serious sin is. When we talk about sin, we use a lot of language that downplays it. And so I, I messed up. I made a mistake. I, I slipped. When in fact, whatever we want to call it, sin is cosmic treason. There is something inherently Godward in sin. It spits in the face of the king of the cosmos, no matter how little we think it might be. It necessarily spits in his face. We see that. Look at Psalm 51. This is David after he sins by sleeping with Bathsheba. This is a stunning statement. He says, God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's a stunning statement because at face value, it sounds completely untrue. How could that be the case? I mean, let's just, just think about it. David sinned against Bathsheba by inviting her and possibly forcing her into a sinful liaison. David sinned against Uriah, her husband, by getting him killed in battle to hide the sin. David sinned against Nathan the prophet by lying to him about it. David sinned against the whole army by arranging his battle plans around a way to cover up his own sin. And therefore, as the king, David sinned against the whole nation. So actually, David, it's hard to find someone you didn't sin against. And yet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David writes, God against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Why? How could that be true? Because there is something about the nature of sin that is first, foremost, and finally directed at the God of the universe. It's not that David didn't owe an apology to everyone else, it's that his primary offense, however ugly it looks here, is far worse vertically than horizontally. His primary offense is always against God. When you sin, brothers and sisters, as we'll talk about, you need to confess to those around you, you need to confess and repent, but if that is all that you do, if all you do is deal with it as a horizontal level you, and you have not dealt with God, you have not dealt with your sin. Sin is cosmic rebellion. It is inherently Godward. Third and final piece under this point, sin springs from the heart. Sin springs from the heart. So very famously in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus defines anger as, in your heart as murder and lust in your heart as adultery. So he's saying there's something deeper, a deeper problem than what you see on the outside. He's, he's pushing the fact that we usually think as long as my hands are clean, I'm okay. I didn't do anything wrong. When in fact, the uncleanness in your heart is where sin comes from in the first place. Look at James chapter one. James, he, he gives us the, the life cycle of sin here. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. He, he's saying sin is not just about your deeds and your ideas. It goes down to the level of your delights. Sin starts from what we desire, what we love. In fact, the word for desire there, which is the same word for lust, it, it doesn't always mean a sexual desire, but it, it, that's part of it, obviously. Uh, the word is epithumia. Sorry, I don't have an anglicized uh, transliteration for you there, but that's how you pronounce that word, epithumia. 
uh, which literally translates to over-desire. So it's not just desire, it's, it's over-desire. So desiring something is not inherently sin, not necessarily. It's, it's when that desire is inordinate. Again, this is Augustine. He says sin is loving something more than it should be loved. So should I love my dog? Yes, and I do. But if I love my dog more than my kids, something is disordered there. That's where sin enters in. Should I love the truth? Yes. But if my love for truth makes me a gossip by by just loving salacious details about someone's life, that's sin. As Tim Keller says, when, when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. If sin is the absence of good, it's, it's what happens when God is not at the top of our loves. If our delight and our desire is for anything other than God, at, as, at its primary point, everything below it will fall into corruption and sin. That's why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and all these other things will be added to you. All this is going to be important in two ways when we talk about killing sin. First, if, James 1, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, then you need to know, brothers and sisters, temptation is not sin. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is what could result in sin, but the battle isn't over simply because you feel a temptation. You, You don't lose a tennis match when the ball comes on your side. You lose a tennis match when you don't hit it back. And second, what we see here is that if sin is born at the level of desire, we cannot just focus on changing behavior. We cannot just focus on doing things out here so that we sin less. That's going to be part of it. We're going to talk about cutting out your eye But we can't just stop there. If sin goes down to the level of our desires, we need a change in our hearts too. Okay, that is our theological foundation. Let's move now to the practical. How, how do we do this important work of killing sin? So this section also has two main subsections. I have the traditional theological terms in parentheses there for you. We need to do two things. One, we need to die to sin, which is historically known as mortification. Two, we need to live to Christ, which is vivification. And uh, one of the things I'm doing in this passage, I'm trying, or not passage, in this section, I'm trying to give you a lot of Bible. Uh, I won't read all of the passages I have here for you, but uh, I want to give you as much as I can because this is one of the most essential tools in this fight. If, indeed, as we saw in Genesis 3, Sin is rooted in lies. Sin is rooted in Satan whispering false things in our ears. Then an essential weapon to fight the lies of sin, Satan, and self is Scripture. When when Satan whispers in your ear, there won't be consequences. Don't worry about it. It'll be fine. You've got Bible to say, yes, the wages of sin is death. Very clearly. When Satan whispers in your ear and you think, I don't, I don't need other people. I don't need community. I can do this alone or whatever else. Look at these passages and realize that's a lie. I need community. All right. First half of this, dying to sin. This starts with seeing sin for how ugly it really is. To kill sin, we need to see how ugly it is. So as long as you convince yourself that sin is no big deal, you won't make progress in this 
fight. If you think it's a house cat and not a lion, maybe you're convinced it's, it's unhealthy, but it's not poison. As long as you soften your view of sin, you will not make progress in this battle. The Bible is clear. Sin is damnable. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. God said in the garden, in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. I mentioned a few months ago in a sermon, my, my favorite book when I was a new Christian was the book of Ecclesiastes. Because uh, Ecclesiastes is all about Solomon trying to find satisfaction in this world, right? He, he, he's looking at all the, he, tr- he, tries, he, he tries sexual immorality, he tries pursuing wealth, tries throwing his life into his career. He tries finding satisfaction in this world, trying all the idols that he has available to him. And he says at the end, it's a waste of time. Nothing is to be gained under the sun. Simple truth, going back all the way to the garden, is that sin is disappointing. Sin is disappointing. It it promises satisfaction, but it doesn't deliver. At best, it is fleeting and frustrating. It does not last, and it will let you down. And then, when when you see the ugly darkness of your own sin, the first thing you need to do is get it into the light. You need to confess and repent. This is almost certainly the hardest step because it's the first one. But without this, there is no victory. There is no freedom. There is only bondage. You must own your sin, confess it, and you must turn from it. Repent. Now, sometimes we get this idea that confessing sin in a a church with your brothers and sisters is is a shameful or, or taboo kind of thing, when in reality, it should be just the opposite. If you call yourself a Christian, just by that, by that word over your life, Christian, you're saying, I am messed up. I am broken. I have rebelled against the God of the universe, and it took the death of the Son of God to forgive me. If that's what we're saying at the starting line, if that's how messed up we're acknowledging we are, why would we try to hide sin along the way? See, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not one sins and the other one doesn't. That's not the difference. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is a non-Christian is on the side of their sin fighting Christ. And a Christian is on the side of Christ fighting their sin. It's a, you're facing a different direction. You're fighting a different enemy. Sure, there's still a wrestling with sin, but repentance is turning around and fighting the right enemy. So we should expect confession and repentance to be normal parts of our lives in a church. And part of that repentance is this, this next thing, pursue godly sorrow. Pursue godly sorrow for your sin. So I'm indebted here to a book uh, by Heath Lambert. It's called Finally Free. It's specifically about fighting the sin of pornography. Uh, if that's something you wrestle with, I've, I've listed a couple of resources at the end of your notes. They're on page five. Uh, that is an excellent, excellent book. It, the principles would apply to any fight with sin, but that book specifically is about fighting the sin of pornography. Uh, but he, he works through 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and he shows two kinds of sorrow that exist in the world. And he actually tells the story about, he's been counseling, you know, two, two, he talks about two different men he counseled. One, or both of them who cried and wept over their sin when he met with them. 
But he said years later, one of them was walking in repentance and purity and one of them had divorced his wife and was walking in unrepentant sin and just rampant ungodliness. And he said, think about this. When I met them both, they were both crying. They both had sorrow. What was the difference? And he says, the difference is what 2 Corinthians 7 shows us, that there's worldly sorrow and there's godly sorrow. They may look the same, but they are at the root completely different. And the point is this, you can have a visible sorrow in confession, even with tears in your eyes, and still not be grieving for your sin itself. There's worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. So worldly sorrow grieves over the consequences of sin. Godly sorrow grieves over sin. Worldly sorrow is short-lived. Godly sorrow lasts. Worldly sorrow will always return to sin. Godly sorrow produces an eagerness to be rid of sin. Whatever I need to do, I want to be free from it. Worldly sorrow fears that people will find out. Godly sorrow fears God. Worldly sorrow wants the sin to be forgotten and godly sorrow wants the sin to be forgiven. Worldly sorrow evades the consequences of sin and godly sorrow says, whatever the consequences are, I want, I'll take them. I want to be free. I want to be done with this sin. That's what godly sorrow says. And so church, if you want to experience the transformative power of God's grace in your sin, pursue godly sorrow. Pursue godly sorrow. All right, next we get to the action steps. After confession and repentance, and I, again, there's military language here. We need to make war because we need a military mindset in our fight with sin. Uh, fun fact, the very first Christian rap song I ever heard was a song called Make War by Tadashi, and it is amazing. And I wanted to put a quote from it in here, but I couldn't find a place for it. So homework, go home, listen to Make War by Tadashi. It is so good. Okay, uh, th it is the reason you have to suffer through me quoting rap songs and sermons is because I heard that song and I was like, there's something cool here. I love it and it's awesome. Uh, anyway, Make War, the song is about killing sin. So it's certainly appropriate to this. That's why I make it your homework. All right, uh, as we saw earlier, Sin goes down to the level of desire. James 4 unpacks this. I, he couldn't be any more clear. Look at James 4. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? These things out here among you, what causes them? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You see what he's saying there? He's saying very, very clearly that sin is an iceberg, right? There's, there's far more beneath the surface than you realize. You can't just skim off the top and think the problem is solved. We need to poison sin from root to fruit. You need to go under the water and see what the rest of the iceberg looks like. What is the sin under this sin that's leading me to it? Because if you can poison the root, the fruit will die. Maybe you're argumentative, because you're really insecure and you're desperate for people to think well of you. That's a fear of man issue under the surface. Maybe you're lustful because you're proud and you think, I deserve whatever I want. Look under the surface. Identify the sins under the sins you know about, look, they're at the top of the iceberg. Get under the water and see what's, what sins are pushing those out. If you deal with those, you will choke out the rest. We need to poison it from root 
to fruit. But that doesn't mean you ignore the fruit while you're focusing on that. That's, a, that's the long haul work. In the meantime, certainly, absolutely attack the fruit too. And you should do that in two ways. You should do that personally and you should do that in community. So personally, make no provision for the flesh. Don't give yourself an opportunity to sin. You need to make it harder for you to have access to sin in your life. So Jesus says, cut out your right eye if it causes causes you to sin. Tear it out. Take radical measures to prevent yourself from sinning. If you need internet blockers or a dumb phone to keep yourself from going to certain websites, do it. If you need to delete Twitter or stop reading the news every morning because it just stirs anger and anxiety in your heart, do it. It's not worth it. No sin is worth it. Cut out your eye, cut off your arm, whatever it takes, remove your access to sin. That's personally but you need community too. It is not an option to do this alone. Sin wants you to fight alone. Sin loves for you to fight alone. And if you are alone, you are cutting yourself off from a powerful weapon in the fight with sin. You need community. There should be people in your life who, one, know exactly what your primary sin struggles are. They know the darkest parts about you that you are aware of at least. And there should be people too who are allowed to ask any questions and push on you at any time. You should have people like both of those things are true of in your life. And so this is, this is what I do. I have guys in my life, I've said to you, I'm giving you a hunting license. I want you, you have, you have freedom to hunt in my life. Here are the sins I know I'm prone to and I want you to help me kill them. I want you to help me see the other ones that I'm blind to. You're allowed to ask hard questions. If you think I'm being squirrely, push harder. Ask, are you being honest right now? Push me if I need it, if you think I need it. You have a hunting license in my life. You need to say that to someone if you've never said that to someone. If you don't have someone in your life who's aware of your sin struggles and is helping you fight them, don't get out of this room today without finding someone. If you need help with that, I would love to talk to you. Email me, email an elder. Don't fight this alone. If you're fighting it alone, you're fighting a losing battle. All right, that brings us to the second half of this practical section. We looked at mortification, putting sin to death. That's essential, but it is not sufficient. Mortification is essential, but not sufficient. We need the other side to, to die to sin we need something infinitely better to live for. The fight against sin cannot be only about sin. Think about this. If a quarterback spends all his film study and all his practice time and everything he does focusing on not throwing interceptions, he's not gonna win the game. If a compass was you know, sentient and said, I'm just gonna try not to point south, it won't work. It needs something, it needs the the right orientation. It needs to pursue the right thing. So I mentioned Billy Joel's words, right? I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners seem much more fun. And he's wrong, but he is onto something. Here's what he's onto. Joy is a far more powerful force than hatred when it comes to moral transformation. 
Joy and love has far more power to change you than hatred. You need to hate your sin, but there's something you need to love too. As Thomas Chalmers says, we need the expulsive power of a new affection. We need the expulsive power of a new affection. You need to realize, brothers and sisters, and experience to the marrow of your bones that in Christ there is more joy, there is more pleasure, more reasons to laugh and dance and sing than in 10,000 of sin's empty promises. When you taste the filet, you're not missing the hamburger helper. At the end of Ecclesiastes, after Solomon, has, he's feasted on every pathetic pleasure the world can offer. He's tried every idol available to him. He says very simply, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. He's saying, I've tried every pleasure. There's only one that satisfies that's what God offers, church. We are not here. The, the Christian life is not just this, woe is me, I gotta miss out on all the fun in life because I'm trying to follow Jesus. No, no, no. Psalm 16, verse 11, God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Does that sound boring to you, brothers and sisters? Does that sound like you're missing out on the good stuff over here? No, no, no. That's the lies that sin tell you. Sin says you're missing out. God says, I've got everything you've ever needed. Just come to me. Here's the thing. Why do we sin? Why do we sin? The answer is pretty simple. Because we love it. We sin because we love it. Eve saw the fruit was a delight to the eyes. But if she had looked at the bounty around her, if she, had, if she had not worried that this one little tree might be where real joy can be found and she's seen all the joys available to her in Christ, in God, she would not have worried about this one little tree. Look, God's provided everything I've ever needed. How can I worry about this one? An essential part of fighting sin is basking in the pleasures of Christ. And just briefly, two ways I want to talk about doing that. First, savor the beauty of Christ. As Andrew Bonar says, the most effectual way of seeing the evil of sin is in the face of Christ. When you see his, his glory and his beauty, you will lose your taste for sin. And that glory, the beauty of Jesus, is clearest to us in the gospel. So we need a daily reflection on the glorious message of the gospel of Christ. So Paul's trying to show us in Romans 6. He says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall surely be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's the gospel he's telling us. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your immortal body to make you obey its passions. There's a far greater pleasure. When sin whispers its lies, brothers and sisters, fix your eyes on the glorious gospel truth. Jesus paid it all. He lived a life free from sin for you. He bore the guilt of sin 
for you. And he rose in victory over sin for you. And right now, fix your eyes on this church. Right now, Jesus stands in heaven showing the wounds that purchased your pardon forever and ever. First John 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's what he's doing now. And one day, one glorious day, he's going to return and he'll banish sin forever. One day you will see Jesus with your own eyes and you will never sin again. The battle is won. It's just not over yet. We need to see the ugliness of sin. Its, its wages is our death, but we must also fix our gaze on the free gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you do that, when you, when you fix your eyes on Jesus and you're just captivated by his beauty, sin's going to starve and die off to the side and you probably won't even realize it. We need to savor his beauty. Obvious question, how do, how do we do that? Well, that's what a lot of the teachings this semester are about, how to delight in Christ. So I've listed the other texts, we're, the other classes we're doing uh, throughout this semester on delight. Study the Bible, meditate on it, pray it, look at creation, learn from church heroes. Uh, it's important to remember that none of these is a magic formula. I hope this has been clear in all of them. None, these are the ordinary means to delight in Christ, but it's not just a magic thing. You do it and boom. But you will ordinarily find a growing distaste for sin when you're meditating on the Bible, when you're studying it, when you're, when you're learning from your church heroes. But those things are not the end. They're the means. Jesus is the end, and they are designed to help get you to him. Final thing we need to do to kill sin is chase after Jesus. This is obedience. Galatians 5 is so clear. When you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So very simply, Obedience kills disobedience. Right? If sin is a turning away from God, we must turn towards God. We must obey his word. And it's not a burden. When you know the one you're obeying is good and loves you more than you could ever imagine, obedience is a joy, a delight. Jesus himself says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come to me. So obey his commandments. They are the preventative measure in killing sin. And I've already harped on this. I'll say it one more time before we close and, and do some Q&A. One command I want us to be especially mindful of, church, is community. Be committed to your church family. Community is not just for accountability. We think community only has a role in putting sin to death. Community has an essential role in living to Christ. It helps us stir one another up to love and follow our king because we know we're not alone in this fight. We can learn from each other by God's grace, become more and more free from sin, and we're waiting together. Even through the frustrations and the ups and downs, the, the, the peaks and the valleys of the battle with sin, as we wait together, we are reminded again and again that one day our Savior will return and sin will be no more. Let's pray, and then I'll give away some books, and then we have a few minutes for Q&A. God, you are good. You are the one we need. 
If we were to fight sin by ourselves, God, we would be losing the battle every single day. We would have no hope for growth, no hope for progress. But in your sovereignty, you have given us each other. You've given us the ordinary means of grace so that we might grow in our hatred for sin and our delight for you. And I pray, God, for everyone in here, in our whole church, that you would make us holy and pure and spotless so that uh, we can walk in greater joy and obedience to you. We love you. We lift these things up in Christ's name. Amen.